Good morning. Today's reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 15, verses 7 through 21. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kathy. Well, we get to come back to the life of Abram today. You know, when a preacher comes to Genesis chapter 15, there is sort of a little bit of a trembling. Uh, you know, all of God's Word is inspired. We believe that here at Bethany Church. We teach God's Word. When we open God's Word, He speaks through it. And it's all profitable for our good and our correction, our proof and training. But Genesis 15 stands out for its Old Testament evidence, first of justification by faith alone. Remember last week, verse 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted it or reckoned it or imputed it or credited it to him as righteousness. When Paul, you know, when he goes on to make his big defense in Romans 4 in his masterpiece Romans, when he goes on to make the defense of that we're saved by faith alone, not by works, he doesn't look to any of the New Testament conversions. Did you know that? He goes to Abram and this verse, and he also goes to King David, which is Old Testament king. There is only one way to be saved, that means. From the Old Testament to the New, one way 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, Abram, David, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, no one comes to the Father but through me. The Old Testament saints looked forward to faith in Jesus in their day. John 8.56 says this, Your father Abram rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So Abram looked forward. We look back and are saved by faith. Abram looked forward to the day of the coming Messiah by faith and was saved. So instrumental, this passage. So may God help me do it justice this morning. Let's, will you pray with me? God, bless your word as only you can. Make the word spring off the page from this 2,000-year-old, actually 4,000-year-old story that we would understand it and apply it to our lives today, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we began last week by looking at Genesis 15, 1 through 6. And we looked at, I hope which was comforting in some ways to you, the inevitability of doubt in our lives. Of doubt in the lives of believers and how God graciously forbears and provides comfort to the doubter. Such an important thing to acknowledge last week as we talked that Abram isn't really the hero of the story. He has moments of great faith, but he also has moments of great doubt. He's got an uneven faith, the man of faith we've called him, and he is par excellence, Genesis 15, 6 right there. He's the man of faith that has an uneven faith. But we were honest last week that the church has to be a safe place for people with doubts. It has to be. The doubters can come and ask hard, honest questions. And when they do, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be uh, shocked. We shouldn't be offended at hard questions. Because doubters are to be welcomed. And doubt isn't to be, you know, celebrated as a virtue, like just doubt everything. Uh, I saw the, um, it was the um, Portland State uh, logo on a bus this week. It said, learn to question everything. That is an example of last week we talked about the virtue of doubt. Don't trust or believe in anything. Question everything. Well, we don't do that in the church. But the other end of the spectrum, we don't shun or shame or squelch doubt because really, That's not what Jesus did. Jesus gently challenged doubters. Remember with Thomas. Thomas, look at my nail-pierced hands. Look at my side and believe, Thomas. He gently challenged doubt. Well, Abram's doubting again. We talked about his uneven faith. He's doubting again. The two promises given to him. What were those two promises? People and land. Just to refresh and remind ourselves. People and land were the two promises. And last week, it was just God's bare word, bare word that Abram had. He promised him that you'll have a people, Abram. A biological son will come from your body, Abram. I I promised that in my word. But he's still, he's still wrestling with doubt. But it's a doubt that's mixed with faith. Much like the father of the demon-possessed boy in the Gospel of Mark, he said, I do believe Jesus, but help my what? My unbelief. I believe, but help me in the place of my heart where there is doubt, where where I'm having trouble believing. See, there's a picture that a true believer can still wrestle with doubts. 
Abram's belief was nagged with doubt all the time. But God doesn't rebuke him. At times he does in Scripture. He does rebuke those with doubt. But I think Abram's was this kind of doubt, a doubt that was mixed with true faith, a a belief and a mixture of some unbelief. He doesn't rebuke Abram, but he reassures him this morning we get to see with one of the kindest, most memorable acts in all of the Bible. So, grab your outline. Hopefully you got it open in your Bibles as well. We're going to look today at the culmination of God's guaranteed promises in this one-sided covenant. What a weird story this is. This one-sided covenant that fueled the faith of Abram that God credited his righteousness to Abram. So let's begin by looking at this. Doubting, again, let's, it's going to resurface. Doubting thee and me and the reassurance of the sovereign benefactor. It's our first section here. It's our first section in verses 7 through 11 here. This doubting of thee and me resurfaces again. We said, and I've already said this morning and last week, doubt is inevitable in the life of a believer. We all have doubts at times. And isn't it just, it's kind of in a way, it can be freeing to just admit it. Every person next to you, every person behind you, every person in front of you, including the one standing at this podium, has doubts at times. It's just freeing to admit that. Now, that doesn't mean we're we're called and given permission to remain passive in our doubts or not examine them and not challenge them. It doesn't mean that. That was the Portland State uh, sign on the side of the bus that went by me. And the challenge with doubt and God is this, though, that we talked about a couple weeks ago. It's two-sided. On the one hand, we doubt thee. When I say that, we mean God. Doubting thee and me. On the one side, we doubt God, thee. God, are you really pleased with me just through my simple faith? Or God, are you just waiting for me to mess up so you can just squash me as soon as you see me mess up, squash me like some bug? Okay, well, thee, maybe you'll come through for me. But here's the other side of it. I also doubt me at times. Thee and me. I know I can't, God, always live up to what you want. My temper gets the best of me sometimes. Sometimes my emotions feel like a marble rolling on the deck of a fishing ship out at sea, you know? I know you want me to forgive God, and yet sometimes it feels like the wound is just too deep, or I can't let it go, go, or he was just too cruel, or she was just too cruel. How about this one? I should be better than I am before you accept me, God. And here again, Abram's given another promise through the audible voice of God, and Abram responds again in this uneven faith, yeah, okay, God, but how do I really know you're going to give me the land? Maybe you'll come through on the people, but how do I know you're going to really give me the land? Don't be too quick to judge him. (laughs) You might think, audible voice, he heard the voice of God, he's doubting. Don't be too quick to judge him. We have way more of God's voice right here in this book that you've got in your lap or that's in your phone, in your pocket, everywhere you go. We have way more of God's voice in the Bible here than Abram ever had ever. And you think, as Abram doubts again, God might respond to him. 
Abram, how dare you question me? How dare you question me again? I've said it twice, three times, four times. How many times do I need to say it, Abram? After all I've done for you, I am sending you back to Ur, Abram. He might, well, you wouldn't be shocked, would you, if he had responded that way? Or, you know, good luck with that, Abram. You know, I'm going to wait out, Abram, and start again with somebody else. You know, I'm going dark, Abram. He could have just disappeared from Abram. Never said another word to him. Let's see, Abram, you're 75. How many days does my book say you'll live? 175. I can wait, Abram, 100 years to start over. No big deal. We wouldn't be surprised if God had responded that way. But he doesn't. So let's look at the conversation and the covenant. Let's start here, where God graciously gives him an incredible response. God personally now stoops down to Abram's level. He stoops down to gently challenge and bring Abram along in growth in his faith. He gives him more words. Look at verse 7 with me. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. I'm the one that's brought you out. You know, that same phrase is repeated again to Moses and the people in Exodus 20, verse 2. I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out. There it is, same exact phrase, but out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's the same phrase. I brought you out. I did this. I delivered you. Do you know, Abram, who I am? Remember, I am the sovereign Lord over all the details. I brought you out. I got you on this journey, Abram. Do you think I will leave you halfway? Do you think he will leave you halfway? I brought you out. I called you out. And those same words are words to us. Do you think God would bring you this far? And leave you halfway? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to drop it halfway. No. Somebody should notice that's wrong in here. Do you notice? Okay. He'll be faithful to complete it. He'll be faithful to complete it. He reminds the doubter, I'm the sovereign benefactor of your life. I am doing this. I'm working my plan. Or read Isaiah 45 and 46 later today if you want to be reminded of this. Here's a couple verses from it that will calm your worried, doubting heart. Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things, everything. Or 46. Remember the former things of old. I'm God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Abram, this is who I am. I brought you out. Do you believe in the same God today? He won't leave you halfway. He never has with his people. But God goes further. He puts not only his words out there, but he puts, oh, a phrase, he puts his money where his mouth is. Kind of, I mean, that helps us understand. He partners his words with actions, is what I mean, in a covenant. What's a covenant? Well, the simplest way to define it is a relational commitment. It's a relationship that has a commitment attached to it. That's why when I counsel couples who are going to get married or when I actually oversee a wedding, I talk about the covenant of marriage. 
What a great picture. A relational commitment that's got some gravitas or weight to it. He tells Abram here now to bring him these animals. It's kind of strange. And what does Abram do? He immediately responds. How do we know he's got faith? Because it now becomes active. He instantly responds in obedience. Get animals? Okay, I'll get them. And he goes and he does it. Faith always responds in action. It's a living faith, a living obedience, and Abram does it. But what's interesting is that God doesn't tell Abram what to do. He just says, get the animals. Abram knows what to do with them. He already knows what to do with them, and so he gathers the animals, and it's a really gruesome kind of graphic picture, but chops them in half and places the two pieces of the animal, one on one side and one on the other, across from each other. Do you know why? He knows what's coming. He does not have to be told what to do. He just says, get the animals, Abram, and he does it, and then he prepares all this meticulous preparation, and he gets ready. He knows what's coming, but we have no idea, do we? We have no idea when we read something like that. What? He just chopped them in half and, like, set the two pieces down? You know, he didn't not skin it and saving it and cooking it up later? No. He's doing something really strange with it. God's about to make him a, a covenant, which, as I said, is this relational, binding contract or commitment here. And this is so foreign to us in many ways, but not entirely, not quite. So I want us to make it clear. We live in a much more written culture. Abram would have been more oral, speak it. Uh, We do that here, we read the word. But a much more written culture that we live in today. Now, we just recently remodeled our building. As you can see in here or if you're in any of the other rooms. And let's just hypothetically say that we had brought our contractor in, which we had one, and we talked to our contractor and said, so tell us what what you're going to do. Here's the plans. You've seen them. Here's what we'd like. What are you going to do? And he said, you know, I'll do this, and I'll do that, and I'll do that many boards on the wall there, and I'll wrap those beams there and out there, and we'll do this, and we'll do some painting. And he said, you know, and here's what I think. I'm going to ballpark this. It's probably going to be X amount of dollars. Can you imagine if I just, great, handshake, that's great, let's do this, and get started on that work. But a couple months later, he comes back, and let's say he said, you know, I was, I was off a little bit. Actually, I was off a lot of bit. <laughs> and he said, yeah, you know, it's actually going to be uh, double now. Let's say I came back, and I just told you, now, this is a true story, and I reported that to you. I think after service, a lot of you would come to, say, uh, to me and say, why didn't you have him write it down? <laughs> why didn't you have him put it in a contract And if we did, and he came back and said, hey, it's double, oh, it's triple, there are procedures that we could go through and channels and even legal that we could go through if we had done that with a contract. What should we have done? Well, we should say to him, well, how much are you going to give us for this and that and this and that, and how can I be sure? And he would say, well, you know what I'll do? I'll write up a contract, a proposal. I'll get that to you, and then we'll take a look at it, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll both sign it. How does that sound? And I would say, great, that sounds really good. Well, as I said in Abram's case here, we've got a storytelling culture. So what they're about to do is dramatize it, act it out rather than write it out and sign it. God is the sovereign benefactor, the contractor in our story, 
helps out the doubting thee and me by his words, his actions, the conversation, and now the covenant that has begun. And what he's showing Abram and what he's showing all of humanity really through the actions with this man is that I have a plan, Abram, and I'm ready to act. It's this and this and this and this and this and this, and it'll cost this much amount, you know. I have a plan, and I'm ready to act. And isn't that what most of us just want anyways in life? We just want to know that somebody has a plan. Somebody somewhere has got a plan for this thing. And that's what leads us into this second part of our passage here. That's what we're calling it today. Don't we just want to know in verses 12 to 16 that somebody has a plan? That somebody's got things in order. Somebody's thought through this thing. They've structured it. They've organized it. They've got a plan. You know, we've got financial planners, don't we? We've got life planners or life coaches, they call them. We've got diet plans. We've got business strategic planning. We've got daily planners, don't we? We like everything in nice, neat little... Who are list people? Any of your list people out there? Okay, a few. I, I see you raising... You're probably raising your hands in the gathering place. Youth room too, Yeah. Yeah, list makers. But what do you do with God's plan for your life? We love to make our own plans. We have people make plans for us. And it makes us feel comfortable when somebody has a plan. Oh, oh they've, got a, they've got a plan. Okay, they've got a plan. But what do you do with God's plan for your life? And what does Abram you know, we've bought into this false narrative that the life of discipleship is always God's best plan for your life. God's best plan for your life, however you define it. It's a myth. It's a false narrative that the church has bought into. I always remember the cover of Ray Comfort's book from 10 years ago, God Has a Wonderful Plan for Your Life, The Myth of the Modern Message. Does that look like a wonderful plan to you? It's not. It's shocking. It's probably Stephen there, maybe Paul. There are multiple people in the Bible that were stoned. Stephen, probably the most famous, who died from it. How do you tell that? Hey, God's got a wonderful plan for your life. How do you tell that to almost every follower of Yahweh in the Bible? Almost every story in the Bible. Somebody's got a tragic story or was near death, or even did die for their faith. How do, you, how do you say that with a straight face? Hey, God's got a wonderful plan for your life. And when we speak this way, like I can't even tell you, countless numbers of self-help kind of Christian psychotherapy books do. I mean, the, 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 the bookshelves or wherever you go, Amazon, are just littered with covers that basically are some version of this, like, your best life now. How do you say that with a straight face to anybody who lived in the Bible? It's a myth. How do we say it and then actually prepare ourselves for when real trials come in life? And you say, this is God's best plan for me? I mean, you told me God had a great plan for my life. How do we give them the hope how do you have the hope that you need to have when trials come if we just say, hey, God's got a wonderful plan for your life with like a, just a cliche when it's a myth? Pretty clear 
Well, it's not that clear. I'm going to make it clear. But the ominous birds come. Did you see it in the passage? And they come and begin to attack the carcasses, it says. And Abram has to fend them off. It's this ominous foreshadow that, you know what, Abram? This is not going to be an easy road. It's not going to be easy when these birds come down to feed on the carcass. And you know, it never has been easy for God's people. But here's the point. God has a plan, whether it seems easy or not. It's the phrase, pain before gain, deferred gratitude, however you want to say it. Pain before gain actually is the life he calls his disciples to. The setting there is this, this, this dark sleep now falls on Abram. It's a dreadful darkness, the Bible describes it, which I think really signifies the, the, the magnificence, the holiness, the weight, the gravity of God descending now in his presence down upon Abram. And it's so heavy that he's crushed under it. He lay, basically just lays down on the ground and kind of goes to this sleep-like state. But again, he gives Abram certainty by giving him all the details of his wonderful plan for Abram's life. And not only Abram's, but God's people. Abram learns here that God's people that he would give to Abram would be a people who are afflicted is the word. They will be afflicted. It's the very same word that's used in Exodus when the people are afflicted and, and, and grow up in slavery and, and populate in slavery to maybe a million people in, in Egypt. Exact same word. For 400 years. Think about that for a moment. God knows and he orchestrates a plan for his people to be in slavery for 400 years for his purposes. It's mind-boggling. And they're not going to be in the land that was promised to Abram for 400 years. But at the same time, how comforting that God would give them that piece of information. Because he didn't owe it to them. He didn't have to give it to them. But how comforting for Abram, and think many hundreds of years later, for Moses to know that even a 400-year painful detour cannot stop God. And in fact, he can work through it. But that seems to be the way our God, our God works, isn't it? He takes us through trials. He works through suffering in our lives to sharpen us, to shape us, to bring us to the end of ourselves, to make us rich as he did with the Israelites that came out wealthy with everything they needed after that 400 years, whatever his purposes and reasons are. I want us to think for a moment about that. 400 years. The next time you and I are tempted, and we are, to, 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 to grumble, to complain. I mean, even this week I'm thinking about, I'm frustrated with, that we have more announcements of um, restrictions on gatherings and churches. I, it's frustrating. It's annoying to wear the mask. But I want us just to think in context. 400 years. 400 years. Maybe in this moment, I just thought maybe this week, maybe these little irritations 
which they are in light of 400 years, maybe God is just getting us ready. Maybe he's making us more resilient. Maybe this is actually a blessing in disguise because we're not quite sure what's coming. As annoying as it is, as frustrating as it is, 400 years till the promises came. That's how God tends to work. Look at Acts 14. From city to city, Paul was going on, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Hey, if he's using this time right now, which is irritating, with masks and, and, and you know, uh, these guidelines and the, the fact that Thanksgiving's all messed up now, if he's using this as little irritations to get us ready so that we have the faith when something really hard comes, thank you, Lord. 400 years. And we know God did deliver them, didn't he? He did deliver them. He kept his promise even though it was 400 years later through the Exodus, and he brought down judgment upon Egypt, the passage says, the words he gave them for their mistreatment of God's people. But for Abram as well, he realizes he will not make it into the promised land. Can you imagine how disappointing that must have been? I left my home behind and I don't even get to go? But also reassuring. Because many more tests were going to come to Abram. We're going to get to them some even harder than what we see, have seen so far. And the knowledge that he was given, Abram, you're going to have a peaceful death. How comforting that must have been to a man who'd already fought wars for God. You're going to have a peaceful death, Abram. And we know, Hebrews says, by faith, Hebrews 11.9, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. But for Abram, that was not going to be the promised land. It was going to be heaven. But he'd get there peacefully, God said. But this is how Believers are many times, and you know this, brought into their deepest moments of communion and trust with God. It's through moments of doubt, as Abram has had. It's through moments of suffering. It's through moments of trial where everything but God's promises are stripped away. Everything but the promises. And faith is all that remains. Some of you are feeling that today, like right now. You're like, I don't know what else can be stripped away in my life. And you're like, all I've got left, Lord, is that I've got this little mustard seed of faith, and that feels like that's about to burn up. Sylvester Kirkmary, that's quite a name, huh? (laughs) Sylvester Kirkmary was a man, probably none of us have ever heard of, but he was a Czechoslovakian physician uh, who was a Christian who was arrested when uh, Czechoslovakia was a communist nation. He was arrested and thrown into prison for more than 10 years, 10 years as a Christian. And he said his basis for resisting in prison was a conviction that there could not be anything more beautiful, quote, than to lay down my life for God. It's incredible. And when he was arrested, the stories say that he actually, when he was put into the van or whatever he was in, he was shackled and he thought through that idea. He actually started laughing. Uh, Do you think the guards like that? No, they didn't like that. But he had this inner peace and confidence. He burst into laughter. He was subjected, Sylvester was, for over 10 years in prison to torture, extreme torture. I wouldn't even want to talk about humiliation, interrogation over and over again. And yet he stood strong. He kept his sanity in prison for 10 years, he said, on faith and evangelizing others while he was in prison. 
He said that in his book. In his memoir, This Saved Us, it's called. This is what he said. He said, I decided to be like Peter, to close my eyes and throw myself into the sea. In my case, it truly was to plunge into the physical and spiritual uncertainty, an abyss where only faith in God could guarantee safety. Material things which mankind regarded as certainties, they were fleeting and illusory, while faith, though, faith which the world considered to be ephemeral, which means fleeting, illusory, was the most reliable and the most powerful of foundations. The more I depended on faith, the stronger I became. So often, it's pain before gain, or through pain, that the faith we need is provided by God and we are strengthened with something that's more reliable than all the material stuff in the world that everybody feels is so certain and secure and lasting. 400 years. But what's almost more important than this section is the fact of the reason for the 400 years. The reason for the 400 years. Let's look at it. Forbearance before justice. So pain before gain in this overall heading of we just want to know somebody's got a plan now to this forbearance before justice. Verse 16 reads that the 400 years would take place because the iniquity of the Amorites wasn't complete. It hadn't filled up yet. The Amorites were one of the main people groups along with the Canaanites that lived in the promised lands. And what we see here is God showing an immense patience with these Amorites. Abram, your people are going to be off in Egypt, living in slavery, and, but surviving. But the Amorites, their evil is not filled up yet. He, he's showing a long-suffering that, that Paul shows in Romans 2.4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness? And forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So, so God gives the Amorites time. Their iniquity had not reached the level where he felt judgment was needed yet. And so he's patient. But guess what? They made really good use of that time, the Amorites did. Their gods were gods of sex and war. And I don't even want to list the sins that Leviticus records, attributes to them. They're not really even PG-13 appropriate. Nevertheless, God was going, he was not, excuse me, not going to bring down judgment on them until the cup was full and justice absolutely demanded it. He's so patient. He's so patient, even knowing that those 400 years while they were in the land meant that his people had to be somewhere else in slavery. He's so patient. So when Joshua comes then to clear out the promised land, with the Israelites after they're uh, freed from Egypt. He goes to clear it out in the Old Testament. It was not an act of aggression, but it was finally God's judgment coming down. This verse is so important, actually. We look at it. It's so passing. Like, oh, till the Amorites' evil was filled up. It's so passing, but it's so important because it places into context all of the Old Testament wars that many people struggle with when they read. Many of us struggle. They slaughtered Who? They did what? We may look on our journey of faith, and this may actually even lead us to doubt at times when we look at our own lives and we go, why do the wicked prosper? 
why is my life so hard when everyone looks like they've got it so easy? But look at the Amorites. Thank God for his patience. Thank God for his patience with you, with others. Donald Barnhouse said this. He said, if the iniquity of the world had been full 100 years ago from our life today, none of us would have been born to be born again. Think about that. So as he was patient with the Amorites for 400 years, so too. If the iniquity of the world had already been filled up, none of us would be here. None of us would have been born to be born again. And thank God we have. You might say, okay, so Abram here now, he hears these promises, the people and the land. He hears about the 400 years of suffering, and he wasn't even going to get the promised land. I don't know. It doesn't sound worth it to me. It just doesn't sound worth it. Sounds like a lot of hassle to get a land that we all know they're going to lose anyways, right, someday. What could make it worth it to go through this? What could resolve the doubt of thee and me? Let's look at our final point. The one-sided confirmation of the covenant. That's what is going to make it worth it for Abram. And for you and I. So here he sleeps. Abram. We go back now to the context here. The story. He sleeps and these dead animals are cut in two and placed across from each other. Abram knows, as we said, exactly what to do is this covenant contract, this dramatization. Remember, he said, they're acting out what we might put on paper and sign. He knows exactly what to do as it begins. Look at verse 17 and 18a. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark. Behold, a, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that the Lord day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. What in the world is going on here? What is happening? Well, God is acting out the consequences of breaking the covenant, the relational agreement. It's like the written contractor with the uh, contract with the contractor. How's he going to pay if he doesn't keep up his end? What's going to happen if he doesn't keep up his end and do the work we said for the price that he agreed to? So what do the animals being cut up have anything to do with this? What do they have any, what do they have to do with this? In Jeremiah 34, 18, we get a clue. Here God says to some of the Israelites, and the men who transgressed my covenant, that contract, and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two, and passed between its parts. Are you getting it? They cut a contract. You cut a contract. You cut the animal in half, and you walk through it. It's like a, a, a blood brother's pact. Maybe when you were a kid, uh, maybe some of you did that. You know, two people, they cut their fingers, and they and make a blood pact on it, and they rub their fingers together. I would advise that nowadays, but... Uh, <laughs> We used to do that as kids sometimes. And, and you would make a blood pact with each other. My blood to honor our word. It was kind of what we were saying as kids. It was saying, this cutting the contract, hey, if I don't keep up my end of the covenant, of this covenant what we have cut, cut me up like these animals. Be done to me what was done to these 
animals. Bloodshed then. Wow. That's pretty serious. Next time you have a contractor in your house, try that. See how that goes. This was done actually all the time in ancient cultures. We know from different stories and archaeology and things that have survived the ancient world. This was done all the time, usually with a king and his servants. They would cut a contract. And so God says, well, let's do this, Abram. Let's, let's get the animals. And Abram's like, all right, let's do it. Let's do it. And he cuts them up, and then this dark sleep comes. But there's two things happening here we have to see to close today. That's so important because here's why. At the end of this contract, Abram arises full of faith and promise and hope and his doubt is assuaged and he's led forward in great obedience as the man of faith. He arises sure of God's promises than before he laid down and we will too today if we see these two things. Who passes through the cut-up animals? Who passes through? It's kind of weird. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, what in the world are those? Remember, it was dark. The sun had just set. He's in this fitful sleep. He's pressed down to the ground in the the heaviness of God, and he sees in this dark, terror-like sleep, this vision of a flame and smoking pot pass through the cut-up animals. They're difficult Hebrew words, but they are the exact words that describe when God came down on Mount Sinai. Moses was there. And they're the same words that describe when the pillar of fire and smoke led the Israelites in the wilderness. So in other words, when the pot, the smoke and the fire passed through the animals, it's really the glorious presence of God passing through through the slaughtered animals. Fire and spark and smoke as God's booming voice says, I will give you the land, and if I don't, and he passes through. If I don't, Abram, may be done to me the impossible. May I suffer and die and be torn in two like these animals. In other words, cut me in two if I don't come through. Cut me in two, Abram. This is how you know, Abram. This is how you know you'll have the land. This is how you know my promises will always come true. May I die and be cut up, Abram. Wow. (laughs) And Abram might have thought, okay, all right, God. I wasn't expecting that (laughs) when I fell asleep. And so I I won't doubt thee anymore what about me? I won't doubt thee anymore. I see you're pretty committed to this. But what about me, God? Remember the anatomy of doubt? It's got two sides. I doubt thee, but I also doubt myself, my, me, how I will come through. And you, you, we're right when we think that way. You know you have personal doubts with God about your faith, about perseverance, don't you? I mean, there are days when you wanted to shrivel up, crawl in bed, and turn the the, the switch off on your faith. And God knows that too. Yeah, yeah, God, I know you, thee, you'll keep up your end of the bargain, but I know I will fail. What about me? My doubt crosses both thee and me. 
Well, what's so fascinating about the covenant is that God passes through and the covenant's made. It's done. God passes through and the covenant is secured. A normal king would probably not walk through these animals. Who would walk through? The servant. The servant would walk through. You know, the servant would be sent through. You don't keep up your end of the bargain. Take care of my land or you're finished. A normal king would say, you walk through. Well, okay, maybe you'd even have a really gracious, nice king who might send the servant through, and as a good gesture, he might go through as well, putting them both on the line for the covenant. But here God says, only I will go through, and the deal is sealed. Only I will go through, and the deal is sealed. What? God is saying, cut me in two if I don't come through, and when you don't come through, cut me in two. Abram, yes, I'm accountable if I don't give you the land. But I will also pay the penalty and absorb the cost when you don't come through. Either way, I will pay the penalty, God is saying. It's going to be me. This is a one-sided covenant, and it's unheard of in all of history or any other religion of the world. It's absolutely unheard of. And Abram could not see what we do. How could God be cut in two? By becoming a man. By becoming a man. He would become a man. There was another day in history when darkness fell on the earth. You know what that day is? And the sun was blotted out, and the weight of God's glory descended upon his son and crushed him to the ground in crushing punishment. And there he hung on the cross in that dark hour, and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Cut me in two if I don't come through, and when you don't come through. Do you see it? Isaiah 56.3 in covenantal language says, He was cut off from the land of the living. Cut in two for you. The doubting of thee and me, do you know where it's reconciled? At the tree. At the cross. The doubting of thee and me, it's reconciled at the tree. And that's where it was for Abram too reconciled. And Paul says in Galatians 3, 13-14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, here it is, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. There it is, the new covenant. The new covenant that was pictured back in the old covenant with Abram. At the heart of our faith is a doubting man with uneven faith who has given a been given a guarantee that God would come through for both of them. So what does that mean as we close? Well, one, if you are filled with doubts of the Christian faith, doubts about God, 
The Christian faith is honest enough to say that we all struggle with doubts and questions even while a deep reservoir of faith grows in us. So come. You've got doubts, come. Let Jesus gently challenge your doubts. Don't celebrate them. Don't be ashamed of them, but come and have them challenged. If you don't think that God would ever challenge you, or contradict you at some point, whether you're a believer today or not, you haven't come to the real God, but you've come just to a version of yourself. If there's a true and living God, of course he'll contradict you and challenge you somewhere, every one of us. And secondly, if you know Christ and you're struggling with doubt, remember today the anchor we have for our souls in Jesus Christ. Hebrews says this, we've read it before, we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope. That is Jesus Christ, the forerunner, the maker of the new covenant. You know, an anchor doesn't just work by hitting the bottom. It's got to be dragged along and then grab onto something. It's got to sink into something on the ground. And you know something? Every single person's got their anchor in something. This is another way of saying every person has grounded their hope in something in this world. Their security a plan, right? A plan for my life. Every problem we have in the Christian life is really because our anchor is not firmly gripped enough to Jesus. That's where our trials and tribulations, our failings come from. Like Sylvester Kirkmary, the material things we anchor to, which seem the most lasting, are the most fleeting. But faith in Christ a heart sunk down into him that is rooted and grabbed as deep into the work that he has done for you, the deeper that anchor sinks, the deeper you will hold in faith when all the rest of the world is stripped away. And it might be. It might be. God's wonderful plan for your life might be 400 years. Might be the cover of the book we saw. But when he was cut in two for you, when he was cut in two for you, 400 years, 1,000 years, a million years, the promises are still coming true. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we close this just powerful benchmark in Abram's life, we ask you, Jesus, to give us faith today. Let us see the beauty in that covenant that Abram wasn't asked to walk through. You, God, went through saying, whether I fail or you, I will absorb the cost. And Jesus Christ, how can we not see the lamb slaughtered before the foundation of the world, cut off from the land of the living, taken outside the city, and cut in two for us? Be glorified today. Because it is in Christ alone the way, the truth, and the life, the promises come to those who believe. Let us sing it out in Christ alone and praise to your name as faith grows inside every one of us. In Jesus' name, the new covenant maker's name we pray, amen.